0: Hey guys, this is AC, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Howdy, how y'all? Welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Aswi, and today joining me is the man known as e boogie himself eric yes sir. wow uh you're you're in quite the good mood today fun day monday i'm used to you being very cynical like oh it's a monday you know not so upbeat did did something good happen with your teams this weekend or something no i mean
1: not really the lakers beat a team that they should have beat last night in the pistons so I'm not exactly going to get happy about that. And it's overcast outside. I don't exactly know why I'm not being my usual Eeyore self, but it's a pleasant <laughs> change. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned your Lakers because, you know, the last episode we discussed exciting teams this season. And, well, if we're going to talk about the good side of the season, we have to talk about the teams that are most disappointing. So, Eric, don't worry. We will get to your Lakers. But before that, I want to talk about the Sacramento Kings. So, as you all may have heard, last week, the Sacramento Kings just fired their head coach, Luke Walton. Now, I don't know if you know this, Eric, but since Rick Adelman was fired in 2006, the Kings have had 11 coaches in 15 years. Can you believe that?
1: That is some type of modern record for non-continuity. <laughs> That's a ridiculous stat. But
0: even more ridiculous is the fact that an incredibly flawed coach in Luke Walton actually has the highest winning percentage of all of those coaches in that list. You know
1: what's crazy about that, Oswe? In that time frame, they've actually had a couple of like coaches who historically were very good coaches. So you have had George Carl coaching that team in that time frame. You've had Paul Westfall, both coaches who have taken teams to the NBA Finals. They didn't win, but have actually gone far in the playoffs. And somehow Luke Walton's like win percentage is still higher than those guys. So that tells you a lot about the state of that franchise.
0: I feel like it's fair to say that because of all those coaching changes, the Kings haven't made the playoffs at all not even once in 15 years. And I feel like part of that is because, I mean, any young player that they bring into their system, their development is probably stunted by the fact that they don't have a consistent coach, a consistent leader, a consistent system set in place for these guys to develop. Because as we all know, when a young player comes into the league, there's a lot that they need to learn about being a professional and handling NBA defenses against them and learning NBA offenses. Well, if that is constantly changing, it's no surprise that none of the young guys who've come to their team have developed. I mean, let's be real. The best player that's come out of the Kings in the last 15 plus years is DeMarcus Cousins. And I mean, that's really it.
1: I mean, he only stayed during like the duration of what was his rookie contract. As far as I remember, he was... He was there for seven years, you know, like the obligatory seven years. Guys who are actually very good do for one team. And then he was out of there. So they weren't even able to keep him. They just don't have a particularly good track record with players since, you know, the post Chris Webber
0: days. Well, at least the bright side or the silver lining in all of this is that they do have two really young talents in De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton. My question for you, though, is can they coexist? And if the Kings have to part with one of them, which of those two should the Kings keep? Basically, what I'm getting at is who's the best player between the two of them? Right
1: now, the best player is De'Aaron Farr- Fox, but that's it. I mean, <laughs> De'Aaron <it's> Fox. <Ford>? <laughs> unintentional Freudian slip I guess but (laughs) (laughs) no uh the the best of the two is De'Aaron Fox I mean at the moment he he has a couple of years in the league on Halliburton but I mean where are you going to go if you have De'Aaron Fox as your number one guy a guy who's basically a poor man's version of Russell Westbrook a high volume scorer who doesn't really do anything particularly great or efficiently. So ultimately I probably will let Fox go just because it seems at this moment, he would be the player that you could probably fetch a little more on the open market and, and like trade compensation for.
0: See, I don't know if I agree with that necessarily. In my opinion, Tyrese Halliburton, uh, maybe not right now, but I feel that he has both a higher floor and a higher ceiling in terms of his talent. Let, let's just talk about numbers right now, okay? When you talk about field goal percentage this season, Tyrese Halliburton is shooting 44.2% from the field and 37.7% from beyond the arc, whereas De'Aaron Fox is 429 from the field and a Paltry twenty five point eight from beyond the arc. When it comes to true shooting percentage, De'Aaron Fox is at fifty point two, whereas Tyrese Halliburton is at fifty three point five. And when you think about PER, they're pretty close. Fox is at fifteen point three, and Halliburton is fifteen point four. The thing is, though, when you look at Tyrese Halliburton, he has so much of the makings of a player. Like all, everything's there. The intangibles are there, and I feel like part of why his numbers aren't as good as they probably could be is because, I mean, his head coach was Luke Walton, right? And and he's on this, for lack of a better term, shitty franchise. If I'm a team, like, for example, if, if the Sixers could trade Ben Simmons for any young talents on the Kings, other than, of course, Buddy Heald, I'd want to get Tyrese Halliburton because I feel like he has so much potential.
1: So, for all intents and purposes, it sounds like <laughs> you and I are agreeing with each other. I was answering your question as like a King's front office executive. If I were trading one of them, I would attempt to trade De'Aaron. I wouldn't trade Tyrese if I could hold on to him. Because again, though, right now, it seems to me that De'Aaron is the slightly better player. Tyrese, I think in the future for winning basketball... I think he might have a higher upside. Not saying like his statistical ceiling is higher than De'Aaron's, but slotting him in as a potential role player on a very good, t- great team, I could see that in his future before I could see that for De'Aaron Fox. So if I were the Kings, I would try to hold on to Halliburton and, and attempt to jettison De'Aaron Fox and see what I can get from him.
0: For sure. But hey, Eric, there's also one other young player in Marvin Bagley. Now, the players drafted around him in his draft class have either become all-stars already, such as Luca or Trey, or at least flashed some star potential in Aiton. So Bagley this year, albeit in just eight games, is averaging 5.9 points per game on 47.4% field goal percentage, 286 from beyond the arc, terrible 58.3% from the free throw line and only 5.3 rebounds per game. So all of these numbers are way down from his usual numbers. And I guess the question is, is this what we can expect from him? Or is it just, hey, he's on the Kings. If he goes to another team, he'll be able to succeed there.
1: I'm not exactly sure. So I think his development has been hurt playing with the Kings. At the same time, you would think at the very least he would be able to like show some upside with counting stats and he hasn't exactly done that. Like it seems to me his game is fairly anachronistic for the modern NBA. He he's a big who's more like has a traditional skill set he doesn't particularly space the floor. He's not particularly switchable on defense. He reminds me a lot stylistically, though not as bad as Jalil Okafor some years back, who was drafted fairly high, just like Marvin uh, Bagley. No, no, but-
0: don't remind me of Jalil Okafor, please.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sixers fan here. Orber
0: Sixer, <laughs> Jalil Okafor give him his proper title at least.
1: Former sixer Jalil Okafor. Yes. But I I mean to me there there are similarities there where it's just if you were drafted 25 to 30 years before you could be a stud. I just don't see it the skill set working in the modern NBA that well.
0: So I guess part of it could also be coaching, right? Now, after firing <laughs> Luke Walton, Alvin Gentry was named as the replacement, and he is a guy who comes right out of Mike D'Antoni's school of trying to solve every problem with more offense. I mean, he's the reverse Mike Brown in that he's a likable guy who keeps getting chances despite only coaching one side of the floor and having teams that consistently underperform. So if you're talking about Bagley's counting stats and potentially his offense. I mean, if you have an offensive-minded coach in Gentry, do you think that he could get more out of Bagley? I mean, what do you think about Gentry as a whole?
1: Well, I mean, Bagley's stats and the four games that Gentry has been a coach, they've gone marginally up. They're still okay. they're still pretty bad and I like I just don't see a, a place where A team that's already seemingly moving away from Marvin Bagley, where they're going to reinstitute him into getting like significant minutes and his, you know, his productivity is going to go up. I think at this point, it seems to me they need to let him go, see what they can get back from him. He's a sunk cost. And even under Gentry, I don't see how that sunk cost improves very much. In regards to Gentry as an overall coach for this young team, I have seen nothing, and I repeat nothing, in Gentry as a head coach that makes me think that this team will be significantly better with him over Luke Walton, who admittedly was a really bad coach. So, like you said, which I think was a very apt point, he's He's a weird like photo negative of Mike Brown where he's just all offense, but that all offense like philosophy seemingly only works with elite veterans. It doesn't really work with guys on the come up. So I, I just I don't see the reasoning of keeping him over any significant amount of time as anything other than a stopgap.
0: Yeah, I mean, and to your point, it doesn't help that already this Kings team is fundamentally flawed on defense, where they're currently ranked 26th in the NBA in defensive efficiency. So I see your concerns and I, I share them because I have a big soft spot for the Kings. You're not going to lie. I love those Chris Webber teams. AC was a big fan of those Kings teams in the early 2000s. And you know, growing up with him, uh, I tend to watch a lot of those games back then. So it's sad to see how far the Kings have fallen.
1: Well, bro, Rick Adelman, Pedro Stojakovic, Chris Webb, and Blotty Divock ain't walking back through that door,
0: so you can move on. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Well, that being said, Eric, the Kings have been disappointing. But if I recall, last week, didn't they beat one of your teams? Who was that again? Yeah,
1: I mean, <laughs> one of the most, like, just despicable losses I've I've ever witnessed with my own eyes they beat the Lakers in triple overtime where LeBron James and each successive overtime shot his team out of the game it was just so bad so 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 bad neither team should have won that game if there was a way to make it a loss on on both both of their you know win-loss columns That would have been great, but someone had to win, and I guess the Kings were marginally more deserving.
0: Well, let's talk about the Los Angeles Lakers. Only 13 months ago, the Lakers won an NBA championship. I mean, that team heavily featured four perimeter defenders who ranged from solid to absolutely elite in Danny Green, Contavious Cobalt-Pope, Kyle Kuzma, and Alex Caruso. They surrounded Anthony Davis and LeBron with four guys like that, and the Lakers obliterated teams when they put AD at the five. And because they had those guys, the Lakers could space the floor enough for AD and LeBron to attack the rim, with, at the time at least, the most dangerous play in all of basketball, which is the LeBron AD pick and roll. Not to mention, defensively, those guys could switch everything, and really just about run any scheme that they wanted to. For example, against Houston, they trapped Harden and scrambled on the back end. Now, just 13 months later, the Lakers have none of those four players. Nor do they have Dennis Schroeder who defended like a bulldog at the point of attack last season. Nor Marc Gasol who was in the right place at the right time and could hit threes to allow the Lakers to play big lineups with 80 at the four and still dominate offensively. Instead, This version of the team has an array of slight guards like Monk and Ellington and defensive sieves like Carmelo Anthony.
1: Yeah, (laughs) the Lakers are an incredibly flawed team on both sides of the ball, with Russell Westbrook, of course, being another person who needs the ball in his hand who doesn't space the floor. Uh, uh, an ability that LeBron historically has needed with his running mates, you're not particularly that good offensively. And defensively, you don't have the aforementioned players that were elite on the perimeter end. You have these smallish guards, as you said. And when you play AD at the five, now he's playing with these small guys who he has to somehow be able to diminish or nullify all of their, like, defensive inadequacies, which is just impossible to ask one player. So what do you do? You're stuck playing DeAndre Jordan and Dwight Howard at the 5 with 80 at the 4 and Russell Westbrook as your lead guard, and now you have literally no spacing. So it's a perpetual cycle of offense and defense just, like, working together in combination where whatever lineup you put on the floor is going to make one end of the floor perpetually bad. So it's just, it's like they're fucked. So the reality is that any lineup with the three of them is going to be suboptimal. And don't take my word for it. Osweep, read off the stats because that shit is terrible.
0: I mean... Shooting is by far the weakest part of all of their games. LeBron is shooting 34.4 beyond the arc. Westbrook is shooting 31.3 beyond the arc. And eighty is shooting 20.5% beyond the arc. I mean, the only way to even theoretically make it work is to at least put eighty at the five so that he can be setting screens for LeBron and Russ. So you mentioned about how the Lakers can't go small, Right. Well, they can't go big either because their big men just can't shoot. And, you know, they called him DeAndre Jordan, right? I'll just call him DeAndre because, as I said before, there's no air with that Jordan. (laughs) I mean, let's just put this into perspective, right? When DeAndre or Dwight are on the court, AD, Russ, and Braun attempt about 10% less shots at the rim than they would otherwise. And when you're talking about their field goal percentage, I mean, it's almost night and day. When neither of those guys are on the court, AD bumps up to 78.5% from the field near the rim. Westbrook is 62%, and Braun is 67.6%. So offensively, it's clear that they hinder the offense of the Lakers, right? But at least you could say, all right, well, what about defensively? Well, defensively, if neither of these guys are on the court, at the rim, opponents are shooting 66.4%. If it's just DeAndre, opponents are shooting 66.5% at the rim. And if it's Dwight, it's 61.4% at the rim. So basically, there's no contribution, neither offensively nor defensively, that Dwight and DeAndre give.
1: So basically, what you're saying, they just need to go full-in offense since <laughs> Dwight and DeAndre aren't mitigating any of the like buckets getting in.
0: Yeah, I mean, imagine if you have Anthony Davis there at the five, right? Like that is going to go down because he's an incredible defender. He hasn't lost a step. But DeAndre and Dwight are just old. They're not the players that they used to be. And if they're hindering the offense so much, and then they're basically a non-factor on defense, what is the point of having them? So you know what I wonder, Oswee? Because it seems
1: to me, though that number at the room is what it is, it seems to me when you have the lineup where you're spacing the floor, with AD as your big, right now they have smallish wing defenders that they insert into space the floor. And then those guys themselves give up buckets very easily from mid-range on out. So I, I wonder what the difference is statistically. And this is just, you know, wondering out loud. What's the difference statistically as far as, like, field goal percentage on the perimeter? Because they seem a lot worse on perimeter defense when guys like Monk and Ellington are on the floor.
0: Well, I mean, overall, this Lakers team has a defensive rating of 108.8, which is 18th in the league. So you don't have to go too much further beyond that to really get a sense for how those guys are doing on the perimeter defensively. Good
1: point. And I've never seen a Frank Vogel coached defense be particularly this bad. The only one I think compares to it is those Orlando Magic teams that he coached. But, like, those teams were bereft of talent completely. Usually when he has talent around him, his defenses are at least hovering around the top 10. So, They really did a number on Frank by giving him the personnel that they gave him.
0: The point you made there is perfect, right? Because given talent, he can do it, right? But the Lakers traded all that talent away, and now they're left with bare bones on defense. And one of the biggest causes for, for trading away all that talent is Russell Westbrook. So let me ask you, what have you seen from Westbrook this season that I guess justifies trading for him. I mean, have you seen anything that justifies trading for him? I've seen nothing that justifies trading for Russ. So
1: the logic was that Russ, he lifted up your floor and that the Lakers kind of needed that, that floor lift. Since LeBron is getting older, he's going to miss some games. And usually when LeBron isn't on the floor, the Lakers go to shit. And, Russ will be able to make up for the the presence of LeBron lacking. Well, when LeBron hasn't played, which he was out for a while with like an oblique sprain, the Lakers were terrible. The Lakers lost multiple games to the Oklahoma City Thunder, in which both games they were leading late. One of the games they went into the fourth quarter leading by 26 points and still (laughs) lost the game. Like these are the type of games Russ was actually acquired to be able to assure that the Lakers won. And, like, he's done none of that. Like, his stats are down. He looks lost at times defensively, which we already expected. He's clearly, like, a re- he has a redundant skill set to LeBron, so when they're playing on the court together, they almost cancel each other out. He's shooting 31% from the three-point line, which for us is somehow optimum. But as a teammate of LeBron where you need spacing, it doesn't cut it. So LeBron is forced to be the spacer on this team. It's just, I'm not seeing anything at this moment that makes me think that this was a particularly intelligent trade and it's looking like a dud so far.
0: Well, there are some upsides, right? Because if you think about it, the Lakers have been plagued with injuries top to bottom and I mean, Trevor Ariza and Kendrick Nunn are going to return at some point. You feel like that'll mitigate it at all?
1: I, like, honestly, nothing I've seen so far makes me think that their return would mitigate the issues we've seen thus far. Neither one of them, particularly Trevor Ariza, is a great spacer. Trevor Ariza used to be a decent defender. He was never a great defender. And now he's old. And now he's he's old as hell. Kendrick Nunn is a decent floor spacer, not a great floor spacer. But it seems to me he historically kind of needs the ball in his hand a little bit for him to to score. So I I don't know if you're plugging him in as a catch and shoot guy, how that's going to work out. So, no, I, I don't see any of what ails them like. Dissipating overnight, so no.
0: Well, okay, fine. So not none, not Ariza. But what about Talon Horton Tucker? Because THD has been undoubtedly a bright spot so far this year. He's vastly improved as a jump shooter and as a defender. Though, to be honest with you, if the Lakers thought that he would become into this player, why did they trade for Russell Westbrook? Because it's just clear that he can't handle the playmaking burden. And the problem is, with Westbrook, THT becomes just another guy who takes the ball out of his hands. So, given that he's the only bright spot, is he the only trade asset they have to somehow get somebody And For that matter, who can they even trade him for that'll right the ship? Because thus far, it seems like a sinking ship. So, I don't want to
1: diminish Talon, because Talon is actually really young, and I I think... There are very heavy expectations for a second round draft pick who's, what is he, like 21 at this point or just turning 21? 21, yep, yep. Talon, for what they traded away, I'm talking about particularly Alex Caruso to keep Talon. It doesn't seem thus far to me that he's that much of a bright spot. If I'm not mistaken, Talon is shooting somewhere like 29% from the three-point line. 29.4%.
0: Yeah, he's,
1: sh- he's shooting less than 40% from the field.
0: 37.9.
1: To me, if that's your return, a guy who's not a great defender, doesn't space the floor, he can handle the ball and create. But how much do you really need his creating? Definitely when you have Russ. You could have just kept Alex Caruso, who was willing to take a hometown discount. And at this point, I'm I'm beating a dead horse, but I just don't see where, thus far, this like big bet on Taylor becoming this difference maker has actually played out.
0: Well, I mean that's that's fair to say. Honestly, when I look at the Lakers, it, it's kind of depressing to see how. They can go from being so good to just a disappointment, and they shot themselves in the foot here, right? You you can make excuses for many other teams about why they're in the situations that they're in, but when it comes to the Lakers, they they just did it to themselves. They 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 overplayed their hand with the Russell Westbrook trade.
1: And if they trade Talon Oswe at some point, what's going to be said is, oh, so they gave up this cheap. Like very good asset, and Alex Caruso, and they kept him just to turn around and then jettison him off, and that's just going to look bad. It's it's an acknowledgement clearly that you lost the big bet that you made on Taylor.
0: No, for sure, it's going to be a long season for all our Lakers fans out there, and I just hope as a fan of LeBron that this is not the end of his championship window, but things are looking dire. No doubt. So to round out this episode, I want to mention a team that I take great pride in attaching to an episode about disappointing teams, and that has to be the Boston Celtics. You have some
1: like weird angst for the Celtics that I'm really surprised about, but I'm just learning very recently that it seems Sixers fans... Dislike Celtics fans more than they dislike any team in the league, which I never knew.
0: Bro, this is like one of the oldest rivalries. The rivalry between the Sixers and the Celtics go back decades. Now, obviously, the Lakers are their big enemy, but there's a lot of history between the Celtics franchise and the Sixers franchise. Now, obviously, we don't quite have 17 championships the way they do. But it goes deeper than basketball. It's, it's about a Philly versus Boston thing. Whether it's football or baseball or basketball, Philly versus Boston is a very real thing. Never knew that
1: up until meeting you. <laughs> so this is a new rivalry for
0: me. Well, when we were talking about the Lakers, we mentioned how some teams like the Lakers, they did it to themselves, right? But then you look at the Celtics and you've got to wonder, what the hell's going on with these guys? Now, let's talk about Jason Tatum, the chosen one, the, the savior of Boston, as, as Celtics fans might like to crown him. Well, aside from lighting up the Lakers, which, let's be honest, just about everyone does these days, he's had a pretty disappointing season. He's averaging 24 points per game and shooting 39.5 from the field. And 31.6 from beyond the arc. I mean, what?
1: I mean, it's crazy because he has the profile of someone who would be a, a very efficient guy from the floor. He he has a, a decent outside game historically. It's been awful this year, but he can shoot from mid-range. He, he can score from different platforms. So the fact that he's shooting below 40% from the field speaks volumes, but I suspect it's because for whatever reason each year Jason Tatum as far as his shooting profile he moves further and further away from the room. So he becomes less and less efficient. Which is of course showing with his shooting splits now.
0: I mean to that end, think about it like this, right? The man is listed at 6'8. Really, let's say it's 6'10 with shoes. Get to the rim, especially since he's a career 83.6% shooter from the free throw line. He should just attack the rim. He has all the skills and the talent to do that. People say that he is a Kobe-esque player. Well, Kobe Bryant, even if he's shooting poorly, is still attacking the rim. He's doing whatever it takes to score. And especially in today's NBA, which you see guys who are slashers, such as my boy, Tyrese Maxey, just slashing it and just really being efficient with it. There's no reason he shouldn't be attacking more. There's no reason he shouldn't be getting to the line more and really just punishing teams close to the basket. Maybe they called him a Kobe-esque scorer because they both missed so many shots. Ooh. Watch out, Eric. You you draw the ire of both Celtics and Lakers fans with that comment.
1: I, I mean, might as well kill two birds with one stone.
0: I think the Celtics overall have a bigger problem with Jason Tatum. Yes, his numbers are down, but when you're a guy with that level of talent, once you get out of your own head, you can put up the numbers. But the biggest problem of Jason Tatum's game, and I've said this for a while now, is he doesn't create enough for his team, right? He has to have the ball in his hands because he's such a great talent. Marcus Smart, a Celtic himself, has publicly called out both Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown for their lack of ball movement. I mean, that's a little bit of <laughs> the pot calling the kettle
1: <laughs> kettle black, a little bit. <laughs> sure. Sure, but <laughs> I mean but wait.
0: He, he can be a black hole as well. Fine. But but that being said, he's still averaging 5.7 assists per game, right? So he's averaging 5.7 assists per game. Tatum's averaging 3.7 assists per game, and Brown is averaging 2.2 assists per game. The thing is. Marcus Smart is not the star, right? He's not someone who has any responsibility creating. But in the Celtics offense, the ball is in either Tatum's hands or Brown's hands, and neither of them are creating for their team. Well, let's be real. How far can a team go when their two best players don't pass the ball well? How far can a team go where
1: their like best defensive versatility guy is shooting 39% from the floor and he's a guard? I'm talking about Marcus Smart, of
0: course. Yes, Smart is a point guard, and he's not known for passing. Neither is Schroeder. Then you have guys like Tatum and Brown, who are similar to Kawhi and Paul George, except that both Kawhi and Paul George, not only are they more talented than these two, they're also better at creating and have also improved at creating for their team.
1: Yeah, see, you mentioned Kawhi and Paul George, and I think ultimately... Jason Tatum will get somewhere in that area of creativity. I don't, he'll probably never be as good of a creator as Paul George, but I do think he can become the passer that Kawhi has become because one of the knocks against early career Kawhi was that he was a person who could score and he could score in different levels and he could score one on one, but Kawhi didn't involve anyone else, and I think Jason Tatum is there at the moment, and in a vacuum, it seems that he has more tools as a scorer at his disposal than early career Kawhi, so I guess I'm giving him a little more grace than you might give him, because he's still really young. I understand, like, in the true scheme of things, the expectations we have of the Celtics is He's not meeting them right now, but I I still think he's relatively early in his career.
0: Sure. To your point, Jason Tatum is just 23 years old and Jalen Brown's just 25. So you're right. They are early in their career, but you know, maybe it's incumbent on their coaching and and, and their, their front office to really tell these guys, Hey, you you need to create a little bit more. Maybe, maybe it'll take a couple more failures in the postseason where the ball is just kind of stagnant. And, you know that's when they'll develop that that creation side of their game.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's what's going to happen. But right now, it definitely is a problem because this team is one of those teams that had relatively high expectations because it was looked at they're going to be healthy, they're going to get uh, new coaching from a, a decent young coach who has pretty high expectations on him as well and he was going to be able to shake up the locker room and getting, get away from some of the stagnancy that developed under Brad Stevens for a couple of years. But
0: Actually, Eric, oh. t- to your point, let's talk about the coach, Emeo Udoka. As of right now, the Celtics are 20th in the NBA in offensive efficiency and 7th in defensive efficiency. I don't know about you, but given the talent on that roster, that really seems underachieving on the offensive end. Granted, Jalen Brown and Robert Williams have been out, but it really does beg the question of whether Udoka is actually getting buy-in from the locker room. Like Smart, Udoka has repeatedly called out his players in the media, and it's almost like falling on deaf ears.
1: Yeah, I don't know. So we're a quarter away through the season, basically. Yeah, almost. The the Celtics have underachieved uh, by any measure. Yep. And like you said, offensively, with them being 20th in the league, where you have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, it never makes sense for you to be 20th offensively because those guys on talent alone can be the two best perimeter scores for a championship team. So they definitely are underachieving. I don't know if I would go as far as saying he's just like losing the locker room because I still think as early, I want to see by the halfway point of the season, if they can kind of pull it together, but right now, and it's not looking good at all.
0: So let's say they do turn it around.
1: What's the ceiling of this Boston team? I honestly don't know. So you have, you have a bunch of guys who are their core. I'm talking about Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart. They've gotten fairly far in the playoffs and years past. So at the very least, your core guys have a history of performing when it counts. This Eastern Conference, I expect the Bucks to be very good. They're, they're getting better. Uh, they had a, a lull early in, earlier in the season, but they'll be there. Uh, the Nets are going to be there. The Heat are better than they were last year. The Bulls are better than they were last year. The Eastern Conference as a whole is better than they were last year. So honestly, I'm not exactly sure what the Celtics' ceiling is. Right now, it seems like an early playoff exit, personally.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, now, I don't expect some teams that are overachieving, such as you know the Wizards or the... The Hornets to really be contenders for that, especially because my injured Sixers are coming back. But look, the Celtics are the playing game as of right now. So things are definitely looking dire for them. But you know, Eric, let me just take a second to kind of bask in this glorious failure of the Celtics. And you know what? I have a hot take for you. Hot take alert. Hot take alert. So, as you all know, I'm a Sixers fan. And part of being a Sixers fan is having some level of animosity toward the Celtics. I remember a couple of years ago, even recently, I would say within the last year or two, you had these smart-ass Celtics fans on Sixers forums talking about how, oh, the Sixers process is dead. It didn't work. But the Celtics, our Celtics process worked. Well, did it? Because as far as I'm concerned, since the Sixers started the process in 2013, the Sixers and the Celtics have gone to the same amount of NBA Finals. The Sixers and the Celtics have won the same amount of NBA championships. So is that the case? Did your process work? Now, they say the Sixers process failed. Have you all forgotten the fact that the NBA literally interfered with the Sixers front office by planting Jerry Colangelo on the team, who subsequently brought Brian Colangelo, who subsequently blew up everything that we were planning and we are still recovering from? Did that happen to the Celtics? Because I don't remember that. I remember the Celtics had a genius GM in Danny Ainge. I remember the Celtics had a genius coach in Brad Stevens. And what did that get you? Exactly where we are. But the difference? The league shot us in the foot. But you? You shot yourself in the foot. So, I don't know about you, but it sounds like the Celtics process was the true failure here.
1: So you've been holding on to that, (laughs) just sitting on it, waiting patiently for years.
0: It's been festering. I've just been... Waiting and waiting and waiting to just let it out. Because guess what? These Celtics fans, I I respect the hell out of them for how dedicated they are to their team. But man, sometimes they can be annoying. You know, I respect the balls of coming to a Sixers form and and talking shit about how great your team is and how much we suck. But the difference is, we actually have upside. I actually think that we can go far this year with Tyrese Maxey. So, look...
1: that's not a hot take alert at all no
0: no, not at all so look guys the celtics are right now in an episode about most disappointing teams and the next episode we're going to be talking about how excited we are about the sixers so look i'm I'm taking the win right now i'm enjoying it and yeah is that what we're talking about next episode and did you just (laughs) unilaterally make that assessment Just to have your
1: hot take make more sense.
0: Yes. I mean, make more sense. It it writes itself. But, you know, look, it's about time we talk about my Sixers. All right. We haven't talked about it this season. So I think let's end today's episode with that little preview. Next episode, we're talking about my Sixers, guys.
1: Apparently next episode, we're talking about his Sixers. But kids, just know this is what miasma of inferiority gets you. These type of hot takes.
0: Well, we hope you guys all enjoyed this episode today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to talk shit to us. You know, Celtics fans, I'm, I'm waiting to hear you guys talk shit. Email us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at brownmenwontjump. I'd love to hear your comments. I'm sure you guys have plenty. Thank you, and we'll catch you in the next one. Deuces. Trust the process.